0: It's a very rewarding process. It can be frustrating, but when you bring people together and you can see the creative potential of collective bargaining uh, happening right in front of you, that's when uh, uh, it, it, it's very satisfying.
1: Welcome. To The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Thomas Koken, who is the George Maverick Bunker Professor Emeritus of Management at the Sloan School of Management at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is renowned for his work on industrial relations and for the organization of work. Tom, welcome to The Work Goes
0: On. Delighted to be here, Orly. Let's begin
1: the discussion by talking about your background.
0: Where did you grow up? I grew up on a small farm in Wisconsin, a dairy farm that was marginally uh, successful then. And uh, there was no future in that occupation. My father made that very clear to me, said, uh, <laughs> get as much education as you can and do something else. And uh, <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, and was lucky enough uh, to get a great education at a Catholic grade school, a very good public high school in the University of Wisconsin in Madison.
1: I know you were an undergraduate at Wisconsin and also a Ph.D.
0: Yes, Wisconsin at the time had this uh, uh, wonderful industrial relations program with uh, some of the best uh, academics and scholars and practitioners uh, of that era. Uh, I didn't know anything about industrial relations, but I ended up by accident in this course called uh, uh, Trade Unionism, taught by a fellow by the name of Jack Barbash, who came right, oh, Jack out, of, Barbash. right out of the 1930s and the, the, the socialists and uh, uh, was, a, was really an intellectual. And he really uh, taught me some things about unions I had never thought about and did it in such a profound way that I never left. And then he encouraged me to, uh, this was as an undergraduate, then he encouraged me to go on to graduate school and he was a great mentor. And he passed me on to some people who were uh, more up to date in terms of research methodology and uh, quantitative analysis and said, you've got to learn this stuff. Uh, He said, that's not what I do, but that's what you need to do. And so I got a, I got a very good education from, People like Barbash and Jerry Summers, who was a, a labor economist in in the so-called manpower field at the time, and uh, others uh, international experts like Everett. Who Casper. did
1: you Who did you work with on your dissertation?
0: My dissertation was in organizational behavior in the business school with uh, in in the industrial relations program. But we had faculty from there. A fellow by the name of Larry Cummings, who uh, was a great. Um, industrial social psychologist, uh, president of his associations, and so on and and he was a stickler for uh, uh, figuring out how to measure interesting uh, issues about conflict and about power and so I gravitated to him, and then to a fellow by the name of Schwab, Don Schwab. Now Don was a real character; he was very young at the time assistant professor, full of himself, full of everything else. And he taught us methodology. And he taught us statistics and methodology as as uh, only he could in a very colorful way, but a very high standards uh, fashion. And so that was my education at yeah. Wisconsin. Yeah. Now, you,
1: you must have known Craig Olson.
0: Oh, Craig was a dear friend. Craig came a few years after I did. Uh, but Craig was uh, uh, one of the... Uh, premier graduates of of that program. He uh, uh, was equally interdisciplinary. He went through the same process I did in learning from the same people, uh, went on to a very distinguished career and unfortunately uh, died at way too early an age. Yeah, way too. He
1: he was quite a remarkable character. He visited us here at Princeton many times. And uh, even toward the end, in fact, he visited us even though he was very stiff and difficult for him to get around, but he was still doing fantastic work, I thought. Uh, You know, I have to ask this because you mentioned the Catholic school. You actually started something called the Catholic Scholars for...
0: Worker Justice. Worker Justice.
1: What is that?
0: Well, it's a small group that uh, does just what it it says. You know, there's a long tradition of uh, Catholic social teaching, on labor. There was an encyclical by Pope Leo XIII in the uh, late 18, uh, 1800s. There was a, a, pres, uh, a, a priest by the name of John Ryan who invented the term living wage and promoted that. And there's there are there, there some very positive features about uh, Catholic social teaching that I really believed in and believe in today. And I thought it needed to be lifted up. And we need to ground what we do in the study of work, in a sense of morality and and justice. And what are the the values that uh, we should um, experience at work? And we should recognize that all work has dignity. All workers deserve uh, uh, to be treated with dignity. And that was basically the idea. We didn't have an agenda uh, we would meet from time to time and we would talk about issues and uh, we would write a little uh, piece here and there on on it uh, and i wrote uh, uh, some a, a paper or two that uh, reflected that tradition on uh, the issue of unions and uh, the need for modernizing unions in ways that would reflect um, the the issues of today and the workforce of today and to update our labor law and, and grounded it somewhat in uh, Catholic social teaching.
1: That's interesting. I, I went through your curriculum vitae, which is very long, <laughs> uh, very, very long. It took a while. Uh, but one of the things I noticed that's unusual for academics, uh, certainly at MIT, I think, uh, it is you, you have quite a, a, a large repertory of uh, either, uh, I would call them journalistic articles. Uh, sometimes, I know you worked, you, you wrote for the Huffington Post, a number of posts. How, how, do you feel that that's connected to your actual work as an academic, or is it a separate thing?
0: I think it's very closely connected, and although I will say that I grew into that. I uh, was taught by one professor at Wisconsin, a very famous uh, mediator and arbitrator of his era, Nathan Feinsinger. He was in the law school. And and Nate had a great sense of humor. And he said to our class one day, well, there's two conditions under which you don't talk to the press about strikes or about negotiations. He said, one, if you're not involved, you really don't know what's going on. And two, if you are involved, you shouldn't be talking to (laughs) them. <laughs> so that pretty much wrapped it up. You know that's that's a that's a
1: lesson. I heard that exact same lesson from George Schultz as well as Al was. Yes, Rand. yes.
0: Well, he, <laughs> you know, he would he and Schultz, Schultz would have been even young, would have been younger than than uh, Nate. Nate uh, passed on in no oh, maybe twenty years ago, twenty five years ago. But but uh, there was that deep tradition, and I I respected that for a very long time. And I'll tell you when the change happened. It was when Eastern Airlines. Uh, went on strike and they were at risk of bankruptcy. And I, I recognized at that time, I was at, at at MIT by then, that all these crazy finance people were talking about it. They knew nothing about the issue. They got half of it wrong. <laughs> and I thought, this has got to be corrected. So I wrote a little op-ed for the Boston Globe, just explaining what was going on and what was at stake and why I, I felt uh, there needed to be a resolution. And then that uh, sort of led me to say well you know maybe there's an educational role here i won't talk about you know who's going to win this strike or who won that or who lost and 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 silly thing and i won't intervene in talking about what people should do or what organizations and labor or, or companies should do in negotiations that's their business and and i still follow that principle that sometimes i am involved in, in those cases. And, and, and there's one going on right now that I'm deeply involved in, uh, but I don't think I should be talking about it uh, in public. And, and so I'm very cautious. But over the years, I've become more and more concerned that we've got to get the public educated in uh, the issues of the day. We've got to do that, and, and, but do it carefully, do it honestly, and do it on the basis of talking about research, not just speculating about what I think is good and bad. Uh, I've got those values uh, that I could speak to, but our job is to bring evidence to bear uh, and and research to bear as best we can so that the public gets a, uh, a holistic view of these things.
1: Well, you started your career at Cornell, I know in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Uh, When was that?
0: That was 1973, and what a wonderful place to start. I mean, it was the Mecca of of, and still is the main uh, school of labor and industrial relations. Uh, Bob McCursey uh, was the dean. I told Bob uh, many times over the years the worst mistake he made in his life is he hired me. And uh, uh, (laughs) he might disagree, but uh, he gets a a good kick out of that. And and he was about to change the school because, uh, as he said on your podcast, uh, the first generation of uh, the founders of the school were about to retire they didn't want to retire but it was time for them to retire and uh, he brought in uh, about eight or nine young faculty I was one of them over two or three four years that uh, really helped change that school and transform that school and among them another person you interviewed Ron Ehrenberg and I know you were helpful in getting Ron to uh, uh, to come to Cornell and that was a, a A godsend because he built a whole new labor, a modern labor economics department out of what was a, you know, a a department of distinguished elder uh, 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 researchers, but needed to be modernized.
1: Yeah, I think it's unique in that it's managed to keep itself perpetual. It it keeps uh, going. So it's a wonderful thing to see. Uh, We should we should talk a little bit about that early work that you did. And maybe this will get us away into talking about your work in arbitration and mediation. Uh, I know you've been interested in that area for a long time. In fact, the National Academy of Arbitrators and so on. What, what, what are what have you had some cases that you can talk about that were especially interesting where you were an arbitrator or a mediator?
0: I've had a number of of interesting cases and challenging cases, uh, uh, and I've always enjoyed them. Uh, you end up. Uh, getting fully immersed in these these cases, at least mediation. Arbitration is a little different because it's cut and dried and so on. And you have the power to decide what to do in mediation. <laughs> of course, you don't. And you have to really work with the parties. You, un- you have to un- try to understand the issues as best you can. You have to help them. But then at some point, you often have to uh, 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 make a subtle recommendation of one sort or another. Um, but one in particular stands out. Uh, we had a uh, big merger of transportation agencies here in the state of Massachusetts. So this is now uh, about 15 years ago. And the governor at the time uh, uh, asked that uh, I help them to merge these agencies because they had – uh, a whole bunch of different unions, about 27 locals and seven or eight na- uh, national unions, and they didn't get along very well. All these different contracts had to be merged. That was one of the more complex uh, negotiations I've ever <laughs> I've been involved. And, uh, and it took, uh, it took about uh, a year, not, not constantly meeting, but we I thought we had an agreement after six months. Uh, everybody thought we did. And then the legislature thought otherwise, no, they didn't want to do it. (laughs) And so uh, uh, about four months later, I got called back in and said, well, we've got a few issues left. Well, they had the tough issues left that they had to change. And so we really worked out a very creative um, uh, arrangement where we recognized you had bargaining units of, of engineers, transportation engineers from different unions who were being paid very different salaries. And so we had to bring up the people uh, to the level at which some of the others uh, were being paid. And we found a way of distributing uh, uh, things over three or four years to, to equalize the, the compensation, uh, as well as to uh, eliminate some very old and, and archaic Work rules on the uh, Massachusetts Turnpike. My God, that was uh, a fiefdom for somebody, and we had to get those out, and that wasn't easy because it was the Teamsters Union and they uh, uh, resisted. But in the end, we got we got it done, and and um, it was uh, very satisfying. And to work with the Governor uh, Deval Patrick at the time uh, was great. There's another one uh, that that involved Marty Walsh, uh, the former Secretary of Labor when he was he was mayor and the, 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 the Boston Teachers Union uh, and the Boston School Committee had tried three times in negotiation to lengthen the, the school day for for grade school kids and failed and uh, it needed to change. And so uh, I worked with them uh, over a period of time to figure out a way in which they could lengthen the school day without adding a lot more costs, but uh, addressing some of the teachers' needs and so on. And working with Marty Walsh was fun because uh, um, he, he had to approve it and he had to come up with some more money for it. And I met with him, and I had known him from some other interactions earlier. Uh, and he said, uh, every time I see you, you cost me money. And I said, <laughs> you're right. He said, well, okay. I understand it as as a labor guy. He understood it. He said, uh, but I can't do it now because I got X and Y issues on my plate. And uh, he said, how would it be if um, I call you back when I'm ready? And I thought, he's putting me off. Well, three <laughs> months later, I got the call, and he said, Let's do it now. You do it. I'll announce it. And it did. And it worked. <laughs> it, was, it was fun because, you know, I saw an expert old labor negotiator as a politician who knew when he could do something and when he couldn't, and that's the art of mediation. You don't push something uh, when you can't get it done, but you keep pressing the parties to find a resolution and sometimes come up with uh, with an idea. Uh, So, those are two. Uh, One other one was really difficult. Uh, Just as COVID was hitting, I got asked to mediate a very nasty um, uh, dispute between the nurses in in, uh, Seattle at Swedish Hospital, which is their big nonprofit hospital. And they had had a a strike and then a lockout, and uh, it had uh, broken down again. And the governor uh, decided he needed a special mediator, and somehow uh, they found me. And I was out there just as the pandemic was starting in Seattle. And so, if you can imagine, here we are negotiating a very tough set of issues.
1: Those like um, March of 2020.
0: Yeah, yeah, and 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 uh, and the docs should be in the hospital <laughs> instead of at the bargaining table. And the president of the, the of the hospital was there, and finally, uh, we, we, that that pressure helped us to get an agreement, and a good agreement, a very innovative agreement for them. Uh, helped the very low wage workers, the environmental service people who deliver the the food and clean the rooms and and so on, uh, were were really way behind in Seattle and needed a a boost and. Uh, Uh, We got that done. And and so that one was very satisfying. Uh, But then I came home and uh, it was just before the, uh, you know, people were staying home. But I called my dean, one of my, uh, and said, you know, all the staff know I was out there. If I come to work and somebody gets sick, I said, what's going to be my legacy here at MIT? Oh, well, he's the guy who brought us COVID. <laughs> and the dean laughed. He said, you're right. You better you better stay home for a while. Stay
1: home for a while, yeah. Nowadays, I think people would understand that better. Yeah. At yeah. that time. So there are funny, was-
0: funny stories like that. But it's a very rewarding process. It can be frustrating. But when you bring people together and you can see the creative potential of collective bargaining, uh, happening right in front of you, that's when uh, uh, it, it, it's very satisfying. Yeah, we should turn
1: to your uh, one or two of your, you. Most recently, you've been writing books. Uh, not not often, but enough. And I know one of them is, is one that I've found interesting. It, it, it's hard to talk about in a way, but it, it's this notion of a kind of a social contract or a workers' rights that somehow... Uh, should be widely respected without having to be even legislated what what how did you come to think about all that?
0: Well, I think uh, the idea of a social contract has been on my mind, but what really uh, cemented it was Uh, As I reflected on a very famous uh, negotiation in the auto industry in 1948 through 1950, it sort of extended for a while, Uh, uh, when Walter Ruther was the famous uh, president of the auto workers, he and and General Motors negotiated what uh, the newspaper uh, there and then Fortune Magazine called the Treaty of Detroit. And that was a critical bargain because what they said was, look, uh, if you unions stay out of our hair on managerial issues, we will agree to a wage formula that says we'll uh, uh, have a cost of living uh, escalator that protects against inflation and will give you uh, or agree to a um, annual improvement factor that reflects the growth in national productivity. So what that did as a social contract, it meant as the economy got better, so did the standard of living of workers, and you saw, uh, as as you know, productivity and uh, wage growth uh, moved in tandem from the fifties through the nineteen seventies, and then it all all broke down. But it was that so, sort of social contract that I think we need to restore today. Now we have to do it on other issues in addition to wages. But we clearly need new wage norms, uh, and we're seeing that play out in bargaining today. Where Workers and unions now feel they're strong enough uh, to really press for, for wages that make up for inflation and so on. Um, we don't know what that new wage norm ought to be. But for too long, wages stagnated, in, income inequality grew uh, uh, to unacceptable levels. And now it's time to start to put us on a path, not to reclaim all of that all at once, but to to get us on a better path where these economic forces move together uh, rather than uh, uh, separately. You know, it's
1: interesting because when I was a graduate student, uh, I mentioned this, in fact, in a podcast with Mike Piore, who had the same point, by the way, that you just made about the fact that productivity growth and wage growth moved in tandem back in the 1950s and 60s. And I even remember closing uh, a model by saying that real wage growth is identical to productivity growth. And so if you could explain wage growth, then productivity growth being exogenous, you could explain price growth. And then, of course, it, that that doesn't work anymore. In fact, uh, he pointed out that Solo had even said it was a natural law. <laughs> it apparently got repealed. Uh <laughs> But I hadn't I hadn't thought about it until recently. Several other people have noted this that maybe this growth of real wages with productivity wasn't a natural thing. Maybe maybe it was something that happened because of uh, of, a, of a, a very conscious effort to make sure that there was a sharing of the output growth in the economy. It's a very a, a very interesting subject. We we should also ask you, though, speaking of cars, about the current automobile strike. Are you involved in that at all?
0: Uh, not directly, no. Good. Uh, that
1: means you can talk about it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's a very difficult uh, negotiations and strike. Uh, and it has uh, deep economic uh, dimensions and deep political dimensions. Start with the political ones because they're more... Uh, obvious, we have a new union president of the auto workers. Auto workers used to be as Walter Ruther, I mentioned earlier, was uh, the most innovative labor leader of our time and it was a very progressive, powerful union and then it fell on hard times. Uh, declined, And then it uh, ran into corruption of some of its leaders. Well, this guy, uh, uh, the new president, Fain, came out of uh, the woodwork and said, I'm going to be the new president. I'm going to get rid of all these other guys, even though uh, the, the current president was, was not accused of corruption, but he was from that same um, uh, group. And I'm going to really rebuild this union in a powerful way. We're going to stand up to these corporations and we're going to demonstrate that we've got real power. And so elect me. So they did. And so he's got a mandate and he's got a platform that uh, he is articulating, as we see uh, in negotiations uh, and in the strike that started uh, recently. And and, uh, we don't know where this will end up, but um, those are the political dimensions that, that he, he has to deliver. It's, you know,
1: Tom, it's good it's good to mention that too because when I teach about trade unions, I try to explain that the union itself is a political device. Yes. It it's not. It isn't. Doesn't run like a, a. In a very simple explanation for how it works, go ahead.
0: That's right. That's right. So those are the political dimensions. Uh, the economic dimensions are that the the real wages of auto workers have fallen. Uh, uh, in the since 2007 and eight, you know, when we had the bankruptcies of General Motors and Chrysler and the deep recession of that, that era, um, they haven't recovered from that. Uh, And uh, uh, then they negotiated an agreement about uh, three years ago, uh, four years ago now, that uh, created a two tier wage settlement. And that is new hires would come in at a lower level than incumbent workers doing the same work. That's always a ticket to a future conflict. We saw that <laughs> in airlines in the 1980s. Every time I see that, I just say, well, just wait, this is gonna blow up because eventually uh, you can't live with those divisions inside uh, of a union or inside of a, a, of a, of a company uh, when you have people doing the same work for different uh, compensation. So, So they've got to fix that issue and I think they will, there's going to be more money going to uh, people at the bottom, uh, and they probably have to bring those up uh, uh, considerably. They also are going to have to bring up wages to make up for the rapid um, uh, rate of inflation that they've that has eaten away at their real wages. And then uh, the, the the this comes at a situation in a situation that is always going to predict a strike, and you're. Former colleague Al Reese was the first to identify this. And he said in one of his his books or writings or articles that when you have a situation where the, the expectations are on different time frames, that is, the workers are looking backward and saying, We lost ground to wages and the company did well, and the companies are looking forward and saying, but we have tough times coming ahead. We've got to invest in new, um, opportunities. Competition is very strong. So you have the, the workers looking backward, the companies looking forward. Al Reese said, that's going to predict a strike. Well, Al, uh, was right. And, and, and that's what we're observing here. Uh, and so Uh, This will be a difficult negotiations. You also have new technology at the heart of this dispute with electric vehicles coming along. That's going to eliminate uh, a lot of uh, UAW jobs because you don't have the internal combustion engine. They call it powertrain Mm -hmm. uh, division. Uh, where they make the transmissions and 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 the engine parts, uh, that's going to go away, and you'll need less labor, and you'll need labor with a different set of skills. Now those skills can be retrained, and and they can they can get there, but uh, they're going to have to make that adjustment, and they're dealing with uh, some joint ventures that are not particularly interested in being unionized, and so uh, the union is asking the 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 auto companies to be neutral or to uh, uh, help them to organize in those new plants. So those are the issues. Uh, they're tough issues. Uh, they're going to require some, some skillful problem solving. Uh, there are big issues for the economy at stake. If there's a long um, uh, auto strike that uh, spreads across all of the auto plants, we don't know uh, how these things will play out. I do believe that uh, uh, given what's at stake, Big stakes for the auto companies, big stakes for for the union, big state stakes for the economy and for the Biden administration. There's going to be an enormous amount of pressure to reach an agreement and to find solutions to these issues. They're not insurmountable.
1: Well, I hope the agreement can be one that doesn't paper over matters and tries to get at some more fundamentals. And I may I'm not sure that'll happen. You know, Tom, our our time is starting to run out here, and our Podcast, and uh, I did want to bring up something that I know that you've talked about and written about, and and that I think a lot of people are interested in, and that's the future role of trade unions in general, uh, and also I think the the way that we seem to have observed some shift in bargaining power. Uh, toward workers. And, and I mean by that at both in unionized sectors and in non-union sectors. Do you have any prognostications about the union movement?
0: Well, this is one of the most uh, exciting times. We've seen this uh, uh, enormous uh, explosion in efforts to join a union, to build a union. We see increased interest by workers wanting to join a union. That's We've documented that in our own surveys and so on. The public is more engaged and, and supportive of unions. So the time is right for a rebuilding of the labor movement. I believe we need that as a society for a strong democratic society and for a reasonable balance of power. But I think it has to be done in new ways. The idea that, that we're going to rebuild the labor movement just by going through a whole bunch of union elections where you got to get 50% and then management resists and resists and resists, uh, that's not going to be enough. We've got to open up our labor law. That's a big political challenge. We haven't been able to do that. We failed at that. That's one of the reasons we're in this mess of declining union membership uh, for so many years. But we've got to open up to new ways of organizing where we, we listen to the workers saying, we want a voice. We want a voice on technology because that's going to affect our jobs. Not to resist it, but to help shape it so that we can be part of that process and and share in the benefits of it. We need to have a voice on work uh, scheduling and on work and family life, which is so important to the young people today and to, to young families. We need to have a voice in making sure that the companies who espouse a set of values about doing no harm, as Google says, live up to those values. And so today's workforce has broader expectations that go way beyond the scope of traditional collective bargaining. And if we find ways, if the labor movement can find ways and other groups of of workers outside of the labor movement, maybe in worker centers and other forms of of organizing can find ways to build sustainable operations and organizations inside uh, their companies and in their industries, then I think we'll have a vibrant labor movement. But if we stay so focused on the traditional stuff and, and have tunnel vision, then there's going to just be a lot more conflict, much of which management is going to resist and is going to win. And then we'll, there'll be another period of frustration that this was just a flash in the pan. So a lot of my work today is trying to get the parties to address these issues in new ways, ways that we know from our research, again, on the public side of this, I don't wanna be out there just advocating what I think needs to happen. I wanna be out there talking about what the research is telling us is needed for workers to have a real voice what we need to do to change the way we bring new technologies in so that they augment work rather than just look to replace workers and that we're fair to those people who uh, are displaced because there will be displacement and provide um, fair adjustment assistance. So, so there are new things that can be done. That's why it's an exciting time to help uh, work on these issues, to keep doing research. So we keep learning uh, about uh, uh, what is is needed and what's possible, and uh, it keeps me busy. Yes, yeah, you have
1: a very articulate, passionate way of talking about it, too, which I really appreciate. Our guest today has been Tom Koken, the George Maverick Bunker Professor Emeritus of Management at MIT. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.